This is one of these days that um, I'm really, really glad that we're here together. Uh, that uh, I kind of count on you being here uh, on all on all Wednesdays, but it's really been a tumultuous couple of days now. And uh, actually, I, I'm a little late this morning because this is uh, once every two months there's a there's a teleconference call that happens in the next building uh, until 10 o'clock and I can't bilocate yet I haven't figured that out so, uh, so I'm always a little bit late but I've been so glad to be able to even start earlier this morning to sit with people because the question for the people who called in, the people who are online, is uh, what should I do to calm my nerves and pull myself together, and uh, among other things. And what I said, first of all, is find people to sit with who are like-minded and sit quietly with them. That's really, uh, that. Uh, I think, in, in a certain way, the antidote, you know, that there are places where I can sit comfortably and securely with people and without even talking to them. No, I mean, here we are in a place where we're studying the the Buddha's fundamental principle that uh, hatred is never ended by hatred, by love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. I began um, microphone a little closer. Is that better? Yes. All right. Wait, wait. Is that better? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That sounds better to me too. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I started that phone call earlier this morning by saying, um, by reading what is now, you will probably know this also, the most famous, the most famous tweet in history. It's a tweet that President Barack Obama tweeted last night, quoting Nelson Mandela. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. That's so... I mean, we resonate to it because we know it to be true, you know. The idea of it comes more naturally to the human heart as you, many of you know, I've been reading um, a book on um, evolutionary biology and uh, specifically uh, the biology of human beings and uh, why, uh, what, what causes us to behave as well as we do sometimes, nobly on behalf of other people, and what allows us to be so ignoble at other times. So I'm reading away, I don't have it with me today, but I've been reading and reading. And the, the, uh, the line about uh, naturally, love comes more naturally to the human heart 
then it's opposite. And I've been reflecting on that. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the uh, uh, something that I read on the last day or two about in groups of uh, baboons. Uh, Professor Sapolsky did most of his uh, research uh, with baboons in uh, Africa. And he said a community of baboons will be sitting around of a, of a morning or an afternoon and uh, men are out maybe... Uh, scavenging or looking around see what they can find and the women are sitting clumped because there are children baboons playing somewhere in the area and if there's a sound you see all these female baboons sitting and uh, if there's a sound of a of an, uh, distressed child of a, uh, a distressed sound of a baby baboon its mother will turn around right away so it's not so surprising that the mother recognizes the sound of her child mothers recognize the sound of their child and then he said if uh, the mother isn't there or even if the mother is there the person who notices next to many of the baboons it's not their child they don't notice but the mother of the baboon that's crying notices and the sister of the mother of the baboon Notices because sometimes if the mother of a mother baboon needs to be out scavenging or something, the sister of the mother babysits the baby baboon. So in a sense, you say, well, yeah, that makes sense. We recognize kin. We really do recognize kin. And the thing that human beings are really called upon to do in this, in this. Age well for a long while now, and maybe haven't, and definitely haven't caught up with, is that how do we go from recognizing our own baby baboon to recognize everybody as somebody I have to take care of? That that last move. I think about that about um, you recognize the sound. In one of the, in some of the the uh, research that they do. They show infants pictures, uh, like infants that uh, are a couple months old, and they they focus maybe two months old, one month old neonatal research, and you show a picture of their mother's face, and they notice it, and they show again the mother's, and they look at it, and after a while they don't look at it so much because it's old hat. They recognize that. And then they show them a bunch of pictures of maybe family members. It's not that interesting to them. And they show somebody else who's maybe out of another ethnicity. And they haven't seen that before. And so they look. And they're surprised by it. So that does catch their attention. It is different. So that, you say, well, yeah, you know, you notice what's, what's different. But then... So we do notice that, but past that, to say we notice and then we learn after a while who's our family and who's the family next door and who's that family next door and eventually who are all the families. And that how they look is not the, 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 the determining factor. But the idea that it's wired into us, it comes more naturally to love. 
It's also less unsettling to the mind because when you feel love, you don't feel frightened. So I do want to talk about that a lot today, but I want us to sit first. Who has never been here before of a Wednesday morning that I don't know? Oh, a lot of people. What's your name? Kimberly. Kimberly. Hello, where do you live? Oh, (laughs) no, it's all right. Everybody's laughing because they're thinking it's just over the hill. (laughs) Please come anytime. You know, in the in the catalog, this is called a drop-in class, which sounds like it's got a, a you know backfield in motion. But some people have dropped in for the last twenty years on Wednesdays. It's not so drop-in. It's a little bit you could drop in, but anyway, who else? Yeah, Mary. Mary, where are you from? Uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, I've been there. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. Are you visiting? Yes, just for, you know, a month. Yeah. And wanted to come here finally, so I'm glad to be here. Oh, good. Thank you. I remember teaching, I was teaching at Southern Dharma, which is right near there. And um, it's a fairly remote place. It's a Dharma center that's in a remote place. And so very quiet all day long, very little traffic going by, nothing. It's in the country. And it's hard to teach at night, though. Because as soon as the sun goes down, it gets dark. The cicadas come out, and they—it's such a loud sound. It's like a roar. So you really, you know, we've been teaching. I've been teaching in a normal voice all day, and all of a sudden, <laughs> so you recognize that. I remember that always. Also, that it was beautiful. Who else? Oh, good. I'm glad you're here. You know what I'm talking about? It's so noisy. <laughs> and you think about how weird the mind is because it's a beautiful rural area and you're practicing the mind should relax and feel peaceful. And you get so annoyed if those cicadas would only be quiet. Then I could relax. It's a roar. It's kind of ridiculous. Anyway. Who else has never been here before? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you came. Did you decide today to come for a special reason, or? Um, well, I'm a teacher, so I can't come. My goal was to come once this summer. So. And here you are. Now, actually, we there are quite a number of people who come in the summer because of that same thing. I grew up with my father was a school teacher in the New York City schools. And I hung out with him all summer because he was home. It was nice. My mother went to a job, but my father was home. So. Who else? I'm Melissa. Oh, I love you so much, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad your father from New York is here. What's your name? Yeah. <laughs> Bill. Bill, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. What else? Who else? Yeah. Anne Marie from Corte Madera. Oh, I'm, here. I'm glad that you're here too. Anybody? Anybody? Everybody? 
Okay, I'm glad that you're here. Please come again. Wow. So you had a long trip this morning. Did you have an accident with your hand? I did. Are you getting better? May you feel better soon. Who else? Everybody else has been here before. Well, Ace isn't here today, but he always likes the part where we say, if there's someone sitting next to you who's new, uh, we'll turn to greet them. And most of us aren't new, but we turn to greet each other anyway. Say hello to the people who are next to you just for a moment. I found myself saying earlier this morning in terms of instructions for practice I was telling the story of uh, Deepama who was uh, um, an Indian woman from Calcutta who I met just briefly Uh, her, my teachers she was a teacher of some of my teachers when they were in India and they brought her to the United States and she visited different parts of the United States and I got to meet her and I was very impressed with her this is 20 years ago 25 maybe um, she's, she's, uh, she died some years ago now she was older then and she had tremendous equanimity about her and tremendous calm and tremendous wisdom and uh, I admired that a lot. She had a lot of serenity. Uh, I thought I'd, I thought I don't think that's in the cards for me because I'm not, you know, I'm more of a nervous type. So serene is not so much my thing. But I, I really, I really admired it. I wished it was. I think people are strung differently to begin with. So we all just come with different kinds of genes. Um, 
but we learn from the people around us and, and from our parents of course and I learned from her and someone asked her once uh, what's in your mind all the time and she said well there are only three things in my mind she said there's um, um, concentration and loving kindness and peacefulness I thought to myself hmm. there's a certain way in which they're not separate from each other they're all inextricably linked with each other that uh, concentration is really was defined anyway as the ability to keep the attention with just one thing and um, it's it's a skill when we people who are artists um, musicians and uh, particularly when they're practicing or in the middle of a concert are really keeping their their attention on one thing in a normal life in the regular course of our lives to be able to concentrate and not let the mind be overwhelmed with flurry is an aid in maintaining peacefulness I thought this morning I was thinking about it again she said my mind is full of peacefulness I think it meant my mind is full of uh, uh, mindfulness and compassion, which I think are all three synonymous with each other. Because when the mind is able to stay focused on what's happening and uh, with a certain amount of concentration so it's steady, but enough awareness so that it's alert to more than one thing, it's alert to what's going on, and it can really let in what's going on. This is what's happening now. Uh, let's see what happens next. I love that definition. That that definition of equanimity or mindfulness is this is what's happening now. Uh, let's see what happens next. And this is what's happening now. What should I do to not make things worse? What action could I possibly take that is going to be helpful in this situation? And that really is a practice of peace, not making things worse. Now, things, come, things happen, and one of the things that I think is part of our lives these days is things happen at an incredibly fast rate. There's a, a shock every day with this, this or that or this or that, and the mind hasn't got a lot of chance to settle itself down and relax. And there are some people who think that that's purposeful. Because if we're shocked enough and confused enough, we won't be able to figure out what to do. So I have a really a sense that these days, the practice of mindfulness, not I don't want to see it, but I want to see it. And I want to see it and say, let's see what's happening. What can I do now that doesn't make it worse and maybe make it better? Which is what mindfulness is. And I once heard somebody say, every moment of genuine mindfulness is an act of compassion. The time I first heard it, which is several years ago, I thought, that sounds very good. I like the way that sounds. Every act of mindfulness is an act of compassion. More than liking how it sounds, I think it's true that every moment that we're able to be there and not react with alarm or hysteria or antipathy or despair say whoa look at that what should I do now is an act of compassion for ourselves 
We're not making ourselves worse. We're not confusing our minds. When it's an act of compassion for the world, the world has so much suffering, not make it worse with my suffering. It's not a moment of quietism, and it's certainly not a moment of um, resignation. It's, can I just see what's happening and see what's happening in me, what's coming up, so that I can act out of a place of clarity? May I not confuse my mind so that what I do really can make a difference. And more and more I'm thinking, I have to think about, I want to think about that more and more because I think our nerves are all on edge. Somebody said that in the phone call this morning. They said, my nerves are on edge. I think everybody is bracing nerves on edge. I think the biggest thing is that we come together in a place where, you know, this is a place where we can close our eyes for a half hour. We don't have to be on the alert. When we do close our eyes, it's coming up right now. <laughs> I'll say something about, so we talked a little bit about concentration, a little bit about mindfulness, uh, uh, peacefulness, which is actually mindfulness and compassion. And the third thing that... Um, Deepama said, is there's a lot of loving kindness in my mind, which is more than just receiving the moment with balance. It's meeting the moment with a warm heart, meeting the moment with a mind that's poised to do something that makes a difference. Um, somebody said to me sometime last week, uh, they quoted a piece of Dharma that said, when some event happens and the mind becomes aware of something and the mind itself is poised and alert and balanced, what comes up is inevitably, necessarily, one of the Brahma-viharas. What comes up is goodwill or compassion or empathic joy or equanimity. That, that an event that falls on the mind that's completely balanced and open and inclined towards the good evokes in response one of those four divine abodes goodwill compassion empathic joy and equanimity which are all which are it's a it's a it's a way of saying the mind that um, the mind that holds itself steady with moment-to-moment incoming, breaking news uh, is the mind that blesses. And blesses not out of root blessing, but blesses out of sincere being moved to bless. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me. So there's all kinds of ways to practice loving-kindness. And I was sitting this morning and I was thinking one of the ways that I teach it with whole sentences is thinking for oneself, may I feel safe, may I feel content, may I feel strong, may I live with ease.
And sometimes if I just say those words, safe, content, strong, ease. I'm going to invite you to do that. Safe, content, strong, ease. Each one on a breath. Breathe in, breathe out, safe. In, content. In, strong. In, ease. And keep doing it on as many breaths as you can, one after another. Every once in a while, you'll lose that focus, something else will come up, it'll captivate the mind, or you'll fall asleep or something. And then when you catch that, start again, safe, content, strong, ease. Try to have those sentiments echo in your body. Like calling down a well and expecting that the well will echo back that sound to you, that feeling to you. Don't worry if you forget the four words. Say the words that you remember. They all count the same, really. Let's do that.
We come to the end of sitting together. Often we share what are our hopes or prayers or blessings for this time, this day. I find this morning that I'm particularly thinking about all the school teachers all over America who are welcoming people into their classes today and tomorrow and the next day. And the world's not the same as it was before the summer and I'm hopeful that the schools become a place of refuge and truth-telling and healing. So many people who could get all healed together just from learning truth. Who are you thinking about in particular this morning?
This is maybe a good moment for us to open our eyes. Normally we say these blessings and prayers with our eyes closed. And I often don't know who it is that's talking because it could be anybody because we really just, we change the names and the situations, but we're really talking about being concerned and, and being, um, and celebrating, celebrating births and making deaths the sacred the sacred passages that they are. Well look around and we could look at each other with our eyes open and know that everybody has stuff that they're wishing for and praying for. Just in a very tiny voice, not in a loud voice. If you have someone that you're thinking about or yourself that you could have mentioned and didn't mention, you want to tell it to the person next to you. And take a minute, you can sit quietly if you want to, or listen around, look around, see if someone wants to tell you something, or if you want to tell them something, why you're here and what you hope for. We do it quietly so it's not a big... I'll talk to myself, but everybody else... <laughs> Everybody else is sitting down there near someone. Say something to them. Now's your chance. Who are you praying for? What are you wishing for?
Take this last moment to uh, to finish. What a weird thing! That's not me. Take this last minute. If someone if someone told you something that they're wishing for themselves or for someone that they care about. Tell them something that's a blessing for themselves. May what you're hoping for, or who you're hoping for, may it be sustained. Tell them a blessing, because they shared a need with you. just thought about uh, somewhere along the line, way in my life, someone taught me that the, um, the salutation goodbye, when we leave somebody and we say goodbye, it's actually an abbreviation for God be with you until we meet again. Did you know that? Yeah, that's true, isn't it? I didn't make that up. No, that's what it is. But, you know, from a time that, uh, from another time, and we don't say that, but it's not a bad thing to say. May you be blessed. I like, the, I like the fact that many people these days don't say goodbye, they say take care. Or take good care of yourself. You know, that, that has a meaning. Take good care of yourself. It means, even if you don't know a person, it means I recognize that you're a human being like me and therefore open to, yeah, therefore vulnerable. You know, that teaching of the Buddha, that the first noble truth that um, that life is suffering, sounds like it's terrible. People hear that, they say, that's a gloomy religion, life is suffering. But that isn't the only thing that the Buddha said. And it actually isn't a good translation of dukkha. It means life is complicated and often uncomfortable. Actually, the word dukkha, where it says life is dukkha, uh, dukkha doesn't translate as suffering it, tra- it comes from the same word that means a wagon the axle of a, of a wagon wheel so if you have ever ridden in a wooden wagon with wooden wheels over a rocky road that's what life is like it's like what you have some very nice countryside that you see and you get from one place to another but it's a little uncomfortable often and life is always a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit disappointing or a lot disappointing. We're all vulnerable. 
and you know the, to come to the end of what the Buddha said or what I said or anybody said when we get it that everybody is equally vulnerable and we say I'll see you later I'll see you next week it's a calculated guess and, you know it, it, it's actuarially speaking it's probably true most of the time but you don't know you don't know my friend Rachel who I've mentioned often who uh, has the same very malignant tumor in her brain as uh, Senator McCain has was in great health a week before she had a headache and now she's not and you don't know that this is your day or not your day if we knew that we'd really be really grateful for this day there's that poem by Jane Kenyon where it says this morning I got up and I celebrated with with my with my partner, and we had breakfast, and I had a ripe peach, and uh, uh, we did work all morning. And then we had lunch, and we lay down together, and then tonight we'll have dinner on a table with a white tablecloth and silver candlesticks. And it ends. That's that's a close quote, but it's not exactly. It's Jane Kenyon, and it's called Otherwise. And the end, it says, uh, uh, at the end of each of the stanzas, it says, it could have been otherwise. And at the end, it said, someday it will be otherwise. And you just don't know when the otherwise day is going to be. And if we knew it, we wouldn't waste a single day being irritable with anybody. Why would we have a certain number of days? I remember thinking, the first time I thought the thought, People said uh, about somebody, so-and-so, uh, her days are numbered. Everybody's days are numbered. You just don't know what they are. Nobody knows what they are, and whether it's a big number or a small number. And uh, But to know that everybody is going to die, absolutely. You just don't know when. So that today, is it really to make something out of today? And at least to make the best out of it that you could make. The thing about realizing everybody's vulnerability is it's, it, it is, I'm convinced, the pathway to, to being able to feel compassion for everybody. And this is, you know, intense times when one's own mind and body are really startled look around and say, ah, it's hard to feel compassion for, for who we think are the people or the groups of people who are frightening us because they seem like enemies. How to feel awake enough and balanced enough to know what to do. That, that definition of mindfulness as being the balanced awareness, this is happening. What should I do now? Could I think about that? Could I clear my mind? You know what I discovered yesterday? Well, I'm going to say before it. Over the last couple of years, uh, you probably know this, uh, there are certain kinds of tests that people take uh, uh, nationwide. Not everybody takes it. But in nationwide testing of incoming college-age students in colleges, 
they are testing lower every year on compassion scales, on empathy scales. And they are hypothesizing that people don't spend so much time with their friends anymore, with live people looking at them. I, I took a photo in Venice last year. It's a really, it's an amazing photo. Um, we were taking a, 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 a boat, which you take in Venice because you can't get any place without a boat, in a boat uh, that was, uh, and we came to a stop and a whole bunch of teenagers uh, got onto the boat because obviously they are getting out of uh, secondary school. It's mid-afternoon and they're going home. And we're sitting along one side and across from us in four seats next to each other are boys and girls, probably looking 16 and 17 years old, they're in the same school, they come in, they get on the boat, and all four of them are on their email together. And the whole ride, they're not looking at each other or talking to each other or saying what went on in school, how are you, how are you doing, anything. The four of them are on their email, glued. And, you know, we've joked about that. we have seen cartoons about people walking into lampposts and all kinds of stuff. But not funny because now people are beginning to see that people um, test lower on empathy or compassion scores. That uh, this is the cover of this week's New Yorker. Did you see this? How many people get this magazine in their house? So not everybody saw it. So it's a subway train pulling into a 42nd Street in New York City. Oh, there you go, Bill. That's a subway pulling into 42nd Street. And you can see that the train itself is on fire. And you see that the conductor in the train is the devil. And the destination of the train, which is always marked in that other window, has an H. And uh, the, the title of the, of the cover, you can look inside, says Train to Hell. And... All these people are on the platform. And if you look at the platform people closely, you see some of them are, have like a worried look with their mouth turned down and their eyes are looking, uh-oh. And other ones have a quizzical look like, hmm, what's that? And other ones are wiping their head like, boy, it's awfully hot in here. But they're not looking around at the train. And some of them are on their cell phone. And that's really, I, I think it doesn't have to have any um, caption underneath it. It's a, kind of a terrifying looking. Also, this, just this last week, my cell phone has started to do a pretty weird thing. I, you may have noticed this as well. I read, someone sends me a text. So I see that uh, people are moving more and more from no, it even happens on emails as well. I read my email, or certainly it happens with texts. I'll get a text that'll say, uh, so we changed the time of the meeting and we're going to be meeting in here and there at this time instead of that time. So this is letting you know, signed Mary Jane or whatever. And underneath you can click reply and write back, whatever. But now, in, before the click reply, they tell you three possible replies, like, thanks for letting me know, see you there, or whatever. And you know, so you don't even have to think 
What am I going to say? I mean, that's alarming. Or sorry to hear it, or da da da, or something. And so that my phone now thinks for me, and I don't even have to take the time to write in. Anybody saw that? I can't have the only phone in the world that does that. So that is alarming, and I don't know. I didn't, and I didn't have the opportunity to sign up. I didn't get a thing that said, "Do you want this handy dandy thing that's going to answer your mail for you?" That I agreed to. I didn't agree to it. Here it is coming up. So now you don't have to have a person on, nowhere that I don't even have to think. I'm oh, sorry to hear it, or I'll see you later, or I got it, or whatever. Ding, and you go. It's one step further and further away. That's kind of alarming. this, you know, how can we stay awake and and feel not helpless in the situation and feel like everybody can say something and that everybody needs to speak up at this point. I was very, very, I brought two things to read to you. Then we'll talk more about what you're thinking about. I really want to talk about what puts us in the category of us and them. People are different. Um, People all over the world, depending on where they were born or where their parents were born, look different from each other, but they're all people. Do you remember last week, and I read you that part, well, if you weren't here last week, then you... Anyway, I read read a passage from a book about two men who... um, met each other during the 10 years of the war between Iran and Iraq, an Irani and an Iraqi man who meet on a battlefield and one of them is wounded and near death and the other one rescues him and brings him to an ambulance and gets him to the hospital. And they don't exchange their names and they don't meet. And he had been primed to kill anybody who he met who was... Uh, Iraqi soldier, but he doesn't. And he doesn't do it. Then they meet after the war quite amazingly, uh, really a miracle meeting and recognize each other 10 or 15 years later. The book is called I Who Did Not Die and uh, it's very touching. But the key part that I brought last week to read here is that when this young 15-year-old volunteer in the Irani army is, uh, finds this very wounded Iraqi and thinks that he, and knows that he's supposed to kill him, uh, he looks at him and, first of all, out of that person's pocket falls his, his pocket Koran and in the Koran uh, is a folded-up photo of a woman and a baby that he realizes must be the woman and the baby that come with this person. And he realizes, if I kill this person, I'm not only killing him, but I'm killing this woman, and this baby will never have a father. So I can't do it. I would feel terrible my whole life. And then, so he doesn't pull the trigger, and the, uh, the wounded Iraqi man smiles at him, a little smile, And he says, you know, I looked at him, he smiled at me, and I thought, he has two eyes and a nose and a mouth, just like me. 
how will we look at each other and say, this has two eyes and a nose and a mouth, just like me. And that that should be enough, just like me. That's it, just like me. Hopes and dreams and heartache and delight when something happens. How will we be able to look past the, the, the categories? We've had quite a lot of identity politics recently. Frank Bruni is one of my favorite um, contributors to the op-ed in the New York Times. He said, <coughs> well, you'll see what this is about. I'll read you quite a lot of this because this is really very, very important, I think. Frank Bruni says, I'm a white man. So you should listen to absolutely nothing I have to say, at least on matters of social justice. I have no standing, no way to relate. My color and gender nullify me, and it gets worse. I grew up in the suburbs. Dad made six figures. We had a backyard pool. From the 10th to the 12th grade, I attended private school. So the only proper way for me to check my privilege is to realize that it blinds me to other people's struggles and should gag me during discussions about the right responses to them. But wait, I'm gay. And I mean gay from a different, darker day. In that pool and at that school, I sometimes quaked inside, fearful of what my future held. Back then, in the 1970s, gay stereotypes went unchallenged. Gay jokes drew hearty laughter, and exponentially more Americans were closeted than out. We conducted our lives in whispers. Then AIDS spread, and we wore scarlet letters as we were marched into the public square to plead with Ronald Reagan for help. Our rallying cry, silence equals death, defined marginalization as well as any words could. So where does that leave me? Who does that make me? Oppressor or oppressed villain or victim? Does my legitimacy hang on the answer? Not long ago, I wrote about Evergreen State College, which was roiled by protests after a white biology teacher, Brett Weinstein, disparaged the particular attack of the day of r racial he healing. He raised valid points, only to be branded a bigot and threatened with violence. That reception was wrong. I said so. And a reader responded, I don't need one more white male criticizing young people of color. Other readers also homed in on my race or on the professors. Weinstein will be fine. He's white. That automatically and axiomatically made him a less compelling actor in the drama, a less deserving object of concern no matter what his actions, no matter his arguments. And then there's a whole article about identity politics. I won't read you all because I want us to talk about it. But I'm going to go on to this part. The exhortation to check your privilege rightly asks us to recognize to recognize systemic inequality.
And he talks about another uh, teacher, on, uh, an- another person weighing in on that, saying uh, uh, the idea is being promoted that people occupying different rungs of privilege or victimization can't possibly grasp life anywhere else on the ladder, that that limits our insights and empathies. So that kind of thinking fosters estrangement instead of connection. That particular teacher noted that people of a given victim group sometimes seem to be saying, you must understand my experience, and, you can't, and, and at the same time, you can't understand my experience. They argue both, so people shrug their shoulders and walk away. Comes to politics and public debate, I, re- I reject the assumptions, otherwise known as prejudices, that certain life circumstances prohibit sensitivity and sound judgment, while other conditions guarantee them. That appraises the packaging more than the content. It ignores the the complexity of people. It's reductive. Somebody else wrote, my black father, born in 1937 in segregated Texas, is an exponentially more worldly man than my maternal white Protestant grandfather whose racism always struck me more as a sad function of his provincialism or powerlessness than anything else. At the beginning of this column, Frank Bruni says, I share the sorts of personal details that register most strongly with those Americans who tuck each of us into some hierarchy of blessedness and affliction. So you know some important things about me but not the most important things. How I responded to the random challenges on my path, who I met along the way, what I learned from them, the degree of curiosity I mustered, and the values that I honed as a result. Those construct my character and shape my voice to be be embraced or dismissed on its own merits. My gayness no more redeems me than my whiteness disqualifies me. And neither, I hope, defines me. I really, really, really appreciate Frank Bruni. He always says the right thing. That particular line about what qualifies us to be able to think or say that we think or feel that we feel for the other person across some sort of identity barrier. I'm not of that, I'm not of that, I'm not of that. When I was young and um, going to social work school and learning to be a psychotherapist, um, one of the things that uh, my professors talked about is, uh, (coughs) is the need to actually put yourself into the position of the person that you're with, or try to do. Try to hear that person's story from the way it feels in them. Uh, they, they, they... Actually, this didn't happen to me. They said, people will ask you, what do you know about, you know, what do you know about having to give up a child? Because I once had to be, actually, uh, with a young woman who had to give up her child because her family had disowned her while she was pregnant. This is way back now. 
through pregnancy, did not have an abortion. Her family sent her away for the last four months of her pregnancy. They said she was away at school somewhere. Who knows somebody like that? Do you know somebody like that? A lot of people know somebody like that. Then she came back afterwards. She came to see me afterwards, actually, just after the child was born. But she was not back with her family. Child was born, and child was a couple of weeks old, so she cared for it in the place that had cared for her before she was pregnant. And I needed to accompany her to the office down the hall where the adoptive parents who were taking this child were going to meet her and take the child away from her. And she had really set that up. She wanted it to happen. And this baby that she had carried and birthed and fed for three weeks was hers. And she felt the kind of bonds for it, I think, that anybody feels for a living being that you've nurtured for three weeks. And she wanted to give it up. She was 17 years old. She was an honor student in school. The father of the child was not interested in being a father to the child. It wasn't the right time for her to have a child. And I remember accompanying her and being present as she handed it over to the young adoptive mother for her. And it was very hard for her and for me. And I wasn't doing it. But I, I was the steadying agent, I hope, in that. And nobody ever said, she didn't say to me, how do you know how I feel? She assumed I did. And I, you know, I, I felt what I felt. This is, if I was 30 then, so I'm 80 now, so it's 50 years ago. But I remember walking down the hall with her. I remember how I felt at that time. Don't you remember moments where you can't exactly know the other person's pain because who could know it really? But you know a proximal thing to it, don't you? I also know that the experience of not knowing it really. Um, a young man I knew because his sister married my son died from a motorcycle accident when he was 21 and I knew him just briefly I knew him from the wedding that had happened just before and I knew his mother a little bit for a year or two before the marriage they lived, she lived in Southern California and we talked quite a lot on the phone afterwards. And I tried to be as present to her as I could be. But I knew I couldn't feel in my body what she felt. I felt really badly for her. It was an incredibly terrible thing. But you don't feel the other person's pain. You feel pain about the other person's pain. Does that make sense to you? You can't feel the other person's pain. You know, I can't imagine how it would feel. I know there are people in this room who have the experience of having a child die. With notice, without notice. Either way, it's terrible. 
and I've known I can't feel that other person's pain. I don't think compassion is feeling the other person's pain. Sometimes people teach compassion meditations as I feel your pain. I don't. I feel the pain that I feel about your pain. I can't feel it if it's not in your body. You don't know. As a matter of fact, there's one of those things that I, you know, I, I find myself sometimes how unhelpful it is to say to people, I know just how you feel. Because he can't. He can't. You intuit how people feel. And you feel moved by their story. Even moments since yesterday. That was an astounding afternoon yesterday. It's unbelievable. And I had moments where I felt very badly for Mr. Trump's family or for the people who have been supporting him. Actually, I, I didn't think to say that to you now, but it's coming out of my mind. And I said last week or something about Okay, so a little bit of schadenfreude when something happens bad. But I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying not to cultivate that in me, joy at other people's mess up. This is sufficiently sad not to take any joy in it at all. But, you know, alarm or dismay or what? But... Yeah, a very good thing happened to me um, last night. I was on a uh, conference call with the National Peace Alliance. So uh, uh, they have a monthly conference call where they send out action programs for the next month. If you want to, by the way, go online at National Peace Alliance, they'll, they'll send you what the telephone numbers are of all the people to call and what actions to take and what you can do. And um, I'm on the uh, advisory board to it. Advisory board means I don't have to do very much but sometimes be on telephone calls and say something about what would be... Um, to talk about uh, how do we keep our mind buoyant enough to keep staying in and... Not uh, not giving up. So I was a small part of last night's telephone call, but their main speaker last night was Representative Barbara Lee, who's uh, a representative from California for since the nineties, early nineties, maybe eighty nine, so a long time. And to hear her voice which was completely free of outrage. She said, we know, we just have to keep on working. As a matter of fact, I'm, uh, here are the list of Senate bills, HR something something, and you can see them as well. And we, I just did, uh, uh, along with my Republican colleague so-and-so, we have introduced uh, 
uh, HR something something right about that now that I'm telling you really look it up on, on Peace Alliance National Peace Alliance and make some phone calls I feel better when I do that um, make the phone calls I do make the phone calls but I, I thought to myself the, ba- the great part of that call is Barbara Lee didn't say a single disparaging thing she, I mean you don't have to it's already completely over the top in terms of disparage. But she said, you know, I have this bill coming up and that bill coming up. I was reminded of... Um, I, I recently saw... Uh, I don't know if I told you about this last week. I might have. Uh, a short documentary film about the uh, Women's March in January. Did I tell you I had seen that? It's a documentary film. It's not out for public view yet, but it will be soon. Uh, and it's a, uh, a filmmaker made it out of clips, uh, 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 out of putting together a montage of women getting ready to go to the march in Boston and women in Washington and women in Oakland and uh, several other places where there were cameras And on the day of the march, there were uh, camera crews that followed different women in different parts of the country going to the march. And particularly, there was um, uh, a group of women in Santa Rosa going on the march. And uh, one of them that I especially resonated to, because she's in her 80s, was needing help getting dressed. She also... So she said at one point, okay, I have to plug in my oxygen up here. And she's got an oxygen uh, canister that goes along with her when she travels. So she says, I put in the oxygen and I'll put on my hearing aids now. I have to put on the hearing aids first because then I put on my glasses over the hearing aids. So, uh, so first of all, I'm putting in the oxygen, then I'm putting in the hearing aids, then I'm putting my glasses over the hearing aids because I can't put them on otherwise, and then uh, put me, help me get in the wheelchair, and uh, don't forget to take my DNR, it's on the door of the refrigerator, <laughs> and, she's get, and they're helping her into the car, and she's saying, you know, I've been marching since I'm in my 30s, but the job is not done yet, so I have to keep on marching. I thought to myself, that's it. That's good. That's for all of us. I also have been marching since on Market Street for the in the in the Vietnam years. I was pushing baby carriages then, but um, here we are, and it, it it's still a job that has to get done. You know, and instead of outrage, I I I, I keep thinking. I'm trying to remember. Last week, I also thought about what should be the name of this talk when I finish giving it. And I thought, well, I could call it um, Outrage uh, with Compassion or something. But I said, that sounds too ridiculous. And besides, I don't think outrage is even a good idea because, uh, I mean, outrage for a minute, like, it wakes you up. Like, maybe there's a better word than outrage. Help me out. What do you think? Mobilization. Uh, Concern. Concern, but I want to be—I want a bigger word than concern. Uh, resistance. Yeah. Resistance. Resistance for sure, but the first thing—what happens? Something happens. It's alarm.
maybe alarm and shock. Alarm followed by um, recognition. Maybe so you get it, this is what's happening. And then the mind says, eek, it's going to be terrible. But you don't know. It might be, it looks terrible. But in the meanwhile, what can I do now? It's like when a fire alarm rings in the firehouse, they don't think it's terrible, it's all burned down already. They run out, they do something. So how about alarm, uh, awake, uh, discernment. How about discernment? Discernment, thanks. <laughs> discernment and action. And do something. Do something. There's a major essay, it's either in Buddha Dharma the spring or a recent essay in um, Lion's Roar, where Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is known for his... Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is uh, um, a Theravada monk for 60 years, probably, because he's my age. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, as I was, and he became a monk. He was a student of uh, Buddha Dharma. He became a monk. And uh, he's um, renowned for his uh, intimate knowledge of Pali language and reading Buddhist scriptures and for the translations that he's written of those scriptures. But Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote uh, in some issue this spring that um, saying no is not enough, the same thing that Naomi Klein has written, a book called No Is Not Enough, a sitting is not enough, is what he wants to say. Calming your own mind is not enough. Like calming your mind enough to go out and say something, enough to go out and make a difference, so that violence doesn't escalate. You know, the, the hatred does not end by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law, is the Dhammapada. That's, that's actually the Buddha talking. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. If they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. You think about when you feel anger in your mind, uh, people have their expressions for it. I can't see straight. I'm so mad I can't see straight. You ever heard that? Or I'm beside myself with anger. So if I'm beside myself and I can't see straight, now would not be a good time for me to take action about anything. You know, that, that, that how to be beside yourself and back in yourself. Or I don't, well, I don't know how to say the right thing. I think that that's really enough for me. What do you think? Tell me. Susan, what do you want to say? Uh, I, want to say well, I want to say many things, but one thing is that Barbara Lee's stay awake. Stay awake? She doesn't say awake. She says, stay awake. Stay awake. That's good. But coming over here, I heard Amy Goodman, and she said, May she rest in power. Oh, that's actually very nice. You know, rest in power. 
rest in power. Who else wants to say something about any of this? Here you go. And Oh, there. Okay. Um, I just saw a clip on television last night um, of the mother of the young woman who was uh, killed in Charlottesville. And it was amazing. I, I mean, it really touched me and almost it brought tears to my eyes that she, I don't even know if she's a Buddhist, but what she was saying was very Buddhist and say, and she was of course in the midst of her terrible grief over losing her daughter and I don't know what the reporters were asking her but uh, how she felt about it but she was saying that you know it what she she did not want to feel she didn't have any feelings of revenge or hatred toward the people or the group that was responsible for her daughter's death mm -hmm. and she said that her daughter in the memory of her daughter, she would not have wanted that. And it mm -hmm. was almost like she did not want to practice blaming mm -hmm. the, the other side mm -hmm. for her daughter's dying. And, and she wanted to keep her daughter's... She said, this is what my daughter would have wanted mm -hmm. for us to not yeah. have feel hatred toward these people and want to take revenge on them. And that really touched me. I, I think that we feel that that, that that was very touching. I think we feel that when we see a, a particular religious group, um, uh, a group of, um, I think it was a, something uh, uh, that happened in the Amish community not so long ago where people said, uh, we really don't have revenge. We have sadness in our heart for the person who did this and... Uh, uh, the, the awareness that the hate pollutes one's own heart, that really is the fundamental thing to know that you poison yourself if you churn up hate in yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that woman's daughter was speaking this morning from church and uh, she essentially was incredibly powerful. Her mother was, yeah, her mother. And uh, what she said was, uh, you're trying to silence my daughter. All she did was wake up a lot more people aware of that position. So not only silenced her, she expanded her. Mm -hmm. and that was pretty amazing for mothers. That's something like that. Hey. I really appreciated the magazine article that you were reading the, 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 the very first one that you were reading um, I kind of in a very strange way understand reverse discrimination because my son is involved in the, um, the slam poetry scene and he also does rap battles and he's this big pink boy that is down there with these guys with do-rags and grills and it was very difficult for him to actually enter that wor world because you know they see him and they assume a 
you had it pretty good. Uh, B, you're not black. Mm-hmm. And C, you don't know how we feel. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's true. I, I don't know how you feel, but I know my son feels very, very deeply about these, these people. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I have a strange situation for myself in that they look at me, and I'm blonde, and I'm white, and I came from an upper-middle-class family, and I am sort of like everything was great for me, but they don't know. Mm. They don't know what it was like at my house. They don't know the things that happened to me. Mm. And, and, and I understand that there's, you know, when you're not, you don't have enough to eat and you're living 12 to a room and your dad has left you and that kind of stuff. But I do find that there, that there is a reverse discrimination against, you know, it's like, look, I, I have my own kind of ghetto in here. It doesn't look like your ghetto, but I do have one. Yeah. I think that that's what Frank Bruni is saying, that nothing uh, necessarily, uh, being a part of a certain group doesn't automatically qualify you to be empathic and it doesn't automatically disqualify you if you're not in that group. Um, maybe if we each think about in our own particular groups where we felt uh, other and where we felt not welcome or even if I, I think here is Frank Bruni saying there was nothing about from whatever everybody could see about me including pool in the backyard, private school. But nobody really knows what's people's inside experience. It's, a, it's an awkward, it's a difficult aspect of uh, really having the racial dialogue that we have to have in this country. That, you know, here at Spirit Rock we've done a lot of diversity training over the last, since we're here. And uh, hearing every voice or assuming that every voice is coming from a place of genuine caring and not having to put out your credentials. Well, I don't look like this or I don't look like that. But as he points out, his particular his particular identity in that in the in the orientation in sexual orientation doesn't automatically make him empathic or not empathic. Uh, nobody's anything makes you automatically uh, anything. Really, that doesn't have to be the you know that that can't be the defining test. The other thing that can't that's not the same. I don't know if this is going to be relevant or what. Um, When I lived in Santa Rosa, I belonged to a synagogue community where the congregants were quite old. Older than I, actually. And uh, there were two women who were actually survivors of the Holocaust. They'd actually been in concentration camps. And they lived and they came to the United States. And both of them... uh, lived long lives. I knew them and they were in their 80s. And uh, when group discussions came up about this topic or another topic, one of them would immediately say, when the question is, well, how do you feel about this topic? That person would say, 
Well, when we were back in the camps and that the particular experience of victimization because of having been a Jew really shaped her whole entire experience. And person B, who had the same experience, that wasn't her response. And uh, her response was generally um, uh, open and cheerful and much more optimistic. And I had the sense in knowing her that her mind was able to say, well, that's over now. People now, a lot of people are still going to war. Some people come home and say, wow, that was terrible, but now I'm going to calm down and go back to work. Other people come home and have PTSD forever. You don't know how stuff falls on different people's minds. I didn't think that in, my, in the case of these two old women, I didn't think old women two was better than old women one. She, she was just different from old women one. And who knows why? We have different constitutions, different genes, different families. So how stuff falls on us has to do, it has something to do with what happens to us. It has something to do with how our parents teach us to hold pain. It has something a lot to do with how much our parents love us and make us feel secure in spite of the circumstances. It has something to do, of course, with what happens to us and what befalls us later. So, in fact, nothing qualifies us for being uh, empathic or not empathic except manifesting it that way. That that's the test of it. Who's here really to be able to say, like that mother did, you know? I, I don't want us to have any more anger. My daughter was really opposed to violence and marginalization. So I don't have to marginalize uh, villains either. I mean, certainly they have to be taken care of. They can't be running around hurting people. But not to hate them. The people who go to prisons to visit their child's killer for years. Every once in a while you read a story in a magazine about someone who makes a, a, a connection with the person who's gone to jail for life because they killed somebody. And somebody in that person's family makes a connection with them and visits them and stays with them over weeks, years. Not because... Because it heals their heart in a particular way. It's, it's you know, almost beyond comprehension. But I think this whole thing is bringing up for me the question of human beings have become so... so... Uh, I mean, there are so many human beings on this planet and there is also a way to know all around, all the time, in real time, what everybody's doing. And... Uh, it's a bombardment of information. In the time of the Buddha, people seriously thought the world was flat. There are still monks in uh, very rural areas who are learned Buddhist monks who will insist that the world is flat. It's just stories that it's round. Or, in fact, that the world was created in seven days out of nothing. That the earth is the center of it. There are all kinds of, you know. But really, to, to in this time, 
when everybody can have information all the time on their cell phones. They, even the cell phone doesn't even give them the information, it gives you the answer to give back to the information. How to be able to stay somewhat balanced and not terrified all the time. One of them is to come together with friends. One of the uh, camp songs I knew as a child is uh, it's very good to sit down together with friends. How good it feels to sit down together with friends. It's a line from Psalms. How good it is to sit down together with friends. So we come here every week, we sit with people who we pretty much assume are like-minded. I'm a little concerned for my uh, my cousins, uh, my have to, I have to say now, not my cousins, but cousins in my family who have the other politics because they're decent people and I'm sure they're pretty horrified today. And uh, I thought, oh, I could call them, but I won't because I think they'll, you know, they'll be afraid that I'm calling to gloat or something or other. And actually, I would, if I called, I would call to sympathize. But I think the smartest thing for me to do is not to call and let it be. I'm sorry I won't be here next week. I kind of depend on you to be here. So I have people to sit with on Wednesdays. I hope you do too. But Donald will be here. So you'll be here with Donald. And I'll be here in two weeks. That's the only thing we can... uh, We can really do uh, there's a teaching from the Buddha where he's prepared a community of uh, uh, monks in his community to go out and teach Dharma all over the world and uh, he gives a particular teaching to them which starts with the words go forth O monk and teach this holy Dharma in the idiom of the people and I'm pretty sure that what he must have meant was to teach it in uh, Gujarati or Hindi or Urdu or uh, Punjabi or wherever you go, that the idiom of the people. But I think the idiom of the people is whoever we meet in any way that we meet them. You know, that the, that probably most of us, we, we speak English and the idiom of the people, but in whatever is what we do with our lives. We meet our families, we meet other people. How to keep our own mind backed off from the cliff of hysteria so it can balance itself. At the end of that phone call last night with the Peace Alliance, they said, do you have any quick tips for balancing your mind? I said, yeah, stay off the television. Turn, <laughs> turn it off. Read a newspaper. <laughs> Listen once a day, but don't re-inflame yourself 20 times a day. It's not good for you. It's like an unhealthy diet. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And we, may we be agents in that.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.